This week's TribCast is sponsored by Find affordable health coverage through Texas Farm Bureau's health plans. For more information or to get a quote, go to tfbhealthplans.com or call 877-500-0140. And Texas State Technical College's money-back guarantee program reinforces our commitment to prepare and place highly skilled, technically competent students in the workforce. Learn more at tstc.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for June 30th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News for the Tribune. This week we're going to have a two-topic show covering the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action and the heat wave's impact on Texas's unair conditioned prisons. Joining us for the first segment is Kaylin Belsha, a national writer for the education website Chalkbeat. Hi, Kaylin. Hey there. Hey, thanks for joining us. So on Thursday, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, the Supreme Court essentially banned universities from using racial preferences in admissions. The decision will impact admissions at the University of Texas at Austin, which is the only public school in the state that considers race. It's also the most competitive public school in the state. Um, But it will also impact uh, admissions at private schools in Texas, such as Rice, SMU, TCU. And it will also impact the college decisions for many students in the state, a state where 65% of students in K through 12 schools are Hispanic or black, and where Texas's big cities and border areas are kind of hotbeds for recruiting um, for elite schools around the country, looking to kind of boost their diversity um, geographically and racially. Uh, Kaylin, the headline from your breaking news story yesterday highlighted how racial diversity in colleges is likely to suffer from this decision. What can you say about what the impact of this ruling might look like and what kind of our university leaders are expecting in the aftermath of this? Yeah, I think something that we've heard time and again from um, heads of colleges and from folks who work in admissions is that their expectation is that Black, especially, and Latino students will decline, um, that they'll see a big dip immediately following, um, and that there will also be some effect for Indigenous students. Um, That's based on what we've seen in states that previously banned affirmative action. Often we saw a big dip right away, and then some of it ticked back up over time. Um, But in general, it doesn't stay um, kind of with the share of students who've gotten more diverse. A lot of that evidence has come out of California, um, where that state has become increasingly diverse. And even though colleges have worked really hard to stay diverse, it has not kept up with the diversity of the state. Um, So that's based on kind of what we've heard from college presidents. Sure. And, you know, in Texas, we've actually seen a preview of this as well. Uh, Back in 1996, there was a federal court of appeals case that blocked state universities from considering race for a while. At UT Austin during that time, Hispanic enrollment dropped by 15% in one year. Black enrollment dropped by 25% in one year. Uh, Of course, that case eventually got overturned. Texas schools were allowed to begin using affirmative action again. UT Austin chose to. Texas A&M, the other kind of flagship school in the state, did not. But it's been a thing where, like you said, there there was an attempt to tick back up. I mean, one of the big things that kind of came up from that was the implementation of the Texas top 10% rule, which guarantees admission to, you know, anyone who graduates near the top of their class. 75% of UT Austin students now get in from that rule. Um, 
And it actually, interestingly, if you look at the statistics, the segment of the student body is actually more diverse from that top 10% group than the holistic review, which considers race. I think one of the things that we're going to be kind of watching over the next few weeks, months, years even, is what kind of steps do these universities nationally and in Texas take to kind of still accomplish their diversity goals while kind of, you know, living under the, the guidelines of this ruling and, you know, not going up against it. What are you hearing from university officials, from, from people in this field so far about how that might look? Yeah, so I think we're hearing two different things. Um, we're hearing from colleges that they will comply with what the Supreme Court ruling is. Um, some have said that they're going to be working, looking for workarounds, um, but they can't be workarounds that basically are proxies for race. Um, so there's a really fine line that colleges say that they're walking. Um, I think at this point, they're looking at some of the text of the ruling that is explicitly says socioeconomic factors are fine. And so I think we've heard a lot of colleges say they're going to be looking at students from low-income families, which is already true, but kind of yeah. class-based affirmative action, um, whether or not students are the first in their family to go to college, which are um, those students are disproportionately Black and Latino. So there is some crossover there. Um, we've also seen um, talk of continuing to use recruitment programs, going after students from particular high schools, particular communities. Um, those have, that had been something that people were worried that the Supreme Court might address, but it's not in the mm -hmm. ruling. And so people are um, kind of still looking at recruitment as a way to do that. Um, we know that from the California case, when they banned affirmative action there, a lot of um, colleges did use recruitment and that became something that was actually quite expensive. They spent a lot more time and money um, going to schools and mm -hmm. it did work in some um, in some fashion, but it, it costs schools millions and millions of dollars. So I think some of the question is whether or not colleges are going to want to invest that money to remain um, racially diverse. Um, we had uh, an announcement yesterday from President Biden who said that he is directing the Education Department and the Department of Justice to basically look at the ruling and see what are the forms of admission policies that are still legally permissible. There's um, some things in the dissent from Justice Sonia Sotomayor that suggests that there are some things that schools might still be able to do. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts explicitly said that it's still okay for students to talk about how race affected their lives, including how they experienced racial discrimination and for schools to look at that they just can't award you know a point a tip based on the student's race like they can't look at the essay and say okay I can tell that the student is black based on the um, anti-black discrimination that they experienced it would have to be because that student experienced racism and has some kind of qualification or skill that they learned from that basically um, but I think what we've heard from um, college uh, admissions counselors is that that's kind of difficult to disentangle. And so we're not really sure, you know, this might not come out until there's future litigation. And um, uh, the Students for Fair Admissions, which was the um, the folks who initiated these lawsuits, they're saying, you know, we're going to be watching really carefully to see what schools do and how they change their policies to see if they're trying to get around the ruling by doing exactly that, by looking at the essays. So I think the personal essays are going to be like a very fraught area in the next couple of years. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point and an issue here. I mean, there was a university president quoted in the New York Times uh, yesterday, basically imagining an essay question similar to DEI statements that some university professors are asked to fill out in their applications, you know, as a kind of a way to, you know, talk about diversity, a way to kind of measure and grade it without necessarily giving people points or, or you know, extra 
you know, consideration because of their race. That made me think about how in Texas, you know, the, we just got through a legislative session where the legislature sort of waged a war against those kinds of statements, specifically targeting DEI programs and DEI statements. And I do wonder about how in red states, Texas in particular, how there might be some hesitation to draw those kinds of legal challenges from groups like Students for Fair Admissions, a group led by Edward Bloom, who has sued Texas universities many times in the past. And I'm not sure they want to necessarily get entangled in those kinds of fights when, um, when you know, they might kind of get an angry legislature or an angry governor or even Board of Regents kind of uh, reacting to those kinds of pushbacks. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the combination of this ruling and the political climate affects kind of the, the approach to some of these things. One, one thing I wanted to ask you too a little bit about, you, you touched on this a little bit, is the idea of maybe that this might make university admissions more opaque. I mean, one thing that we saw in Texas in 1996 was there was this pushback against areas that might benefit students who are disproportionately white or wealthy. And so Texas A&M University at that time stopped considering legacy admissions and things like that. And there's been some su suggestions that maybe this will cause universities to you know, de-emphasize test scores or, or, or even you know, class rank where maybe perhaps white and Asian students are disproportionately scoring higher than black and Hispanic students or under other underrepresented groups. Do you see a significant change in the way universities evaluate applicants beyond just on the issue of race? Like, could we see, you know, other factors being more emphasized or de-emphasized as a result of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about to get very messy. Um, something that the president suggested yesterday was creating a new um, adversity index so that schools mm. might be able to create something that, I mean, that to me sounds quite opaque, um, but using that basically as a way that you could talk about adversity, hardship, um, coming from a low-income family, experiencing racial discrimination. So kind of finding other ways to blend race into student experience and then finding a measurable way to um, include that in the way that <laughs> admissions counselors are looking at your application. Um, I have also heard admissions counselors say that they might introduce even more essay questions. And so there might just be more writing that will um, students will be having to do. Maybe the recommendation letter will become more important because folks will be able to attest to some of the um, resilience that students have. Um, yeah, I think it's it's going to be a big challenge. And I think not every admissions counselor is going to, um, you know, have the same kind of um, changes in policies. And that's something else we've heard from high schools is that a lot of the counselors are going to have to be tracking all of these changes that admissions yeah. um, policies are going to be making. And so it's going to be even harder potentially for low income students, low income students of color who don't necessarily have access to a dedicated college counselor to be able to help them go through all of these changing policies to um, optimize their application. Right. If you're basically, if you're trying to cast a wide net, particularly if you're applying to elite schools and those schools are adding essay requirements or other requirements, that makes it more burdensome to kind of get those out. I mean, another thing you sort of mentioned was just maybe the idea of, like you said, students lowering their college ambitions. Um, you know, I, I am a former higher education reporter, and I remember specifically talking to a student who was applying, who had actually had been admitted to Texas A&M. Um, she was a, went, to a univer, uh, went to a high school in Dallas, 
and was really struggling to decide whether to go to kind of the community college in her area or to go to A&M and really just feeling like Texas A&M wasn't made for people like her. And it was almost like painful to hear her talk about that because she was such a smart, ambitious, responsible student. And you would think that she would do so well at this, but there is just a question of, of certain people who maybe their parents didn't go to college do they not see those types of schools as places where they are meant to be? What are you hearing from students so far? Do you think that that's a legitimate concern that this might affect, you know, whether they should even apply to certain schools? I mean, this is definitely um, a concern that I've heard from high school counselors who work with a lot of low-income students of color who are high achieving. I think um, in the past, and this has been true over the last few years before this decision, that there's been much more focus from students about, will I fit in on this campus and will this campus support me? And will there be, will there be other students who look like me on this campus? So yeah. this is something that college counselors, you know, high school counselors had already said, this was an increasing worry that they're seeing among students. And so this decision could make this conversation even more important for students who might say, okay, I see this school, they're losing diversity, They, um, I don't, maybe have as good of a shot of getting in anymore. Maybe some of their promises around diversity have changed. And so I don't want to apply here. Um, so that could potentially happen. Um, and we do have some really good evidence actually out of Texas. Um, after they lifted the ban on affirmative mm -hmm. action, there's been uh, research that showed students' SAT scores went up, um, their grades went up. And this was especially true for um, high achieving students of color, um, Black and Latino students. And so the uh, researcher who did that work told me she thinks that kind of the motivation um, increased when students thought that they had a better chance of getting in um, and that they actually had better attendance and they'd spent more time on their homework. Um, and so, you know, maybe those students aren't interested in applying to um, the super selective schools anymore, but it could also lower their grades and test scores to help them get into other schools. So I think a lot of people are worried too that students will just end up at maybe less selective schools that may not have as high of um, kind of a benefit of social capital. A lot of high achieving students of color get a lot of benefit out of going to highly selective schools. Um, some people are also predicting that um, there would be a lot more interest in going to HBCUs and Hispanic serving um, institutions, but mm -hmm. those schools can't necessarily absorb all the students who might be interested. Um, so I think we're just gonna see a lot more conversation around fit, around what support this school actually provides to students of color and what kinds of graduation rates and um, financial aid they're providing to those students. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons that Texas provides just in general is, you know, we, we have the top 10% rule now. We have, or we had up until yesterday, affirmative action at, at the, the top public school in the state. And it's just a lot of hard work, right? I mean, to, to get a diverse student body. Uh, Texas has a incredibly diverse collection of students graduating from high school, but those you know, the top universities in the state, the most selective universities in the state simply just don't reflect that di diversity on an even level. And I guess we'll see how this decision affects it. What are you watching over the next few weeks, months, maybe even years to, to, to measure, you know, what the long term impact of this decision will be? Um, well, I think first I'm interested to see what this guidance from the Department of Justice and from the Education Department will look like. Um, President Biden said he expected it to come out within 45 days. So by later this summer, we should see some guidance around 
um, at least what the Biden administration is interpreting to still be legal and what kinds of admissions practices um, that colleges can still use for the upcoming application cycle. I will be interested to also see what students say they're noticing about how applications are changing. Um, high school juniors right now are kind of in the process of getting ready to apply. Um, and some folks might have already written their essay and they might be revising their essay. I've seen conflicting um, guidance from folks about whether or not now students should really emphasize their race in their in their essay or should they not emphasize their race in their um, mm -hmm. essay. I think mm -hmm. I've also seen some concern about, you know, basic, basically like forcing students to talk about adversity, adversities that they experience because of their race in their um, essay. And maybe that's not the best representation of what they would want to put forward, but they're going to feel pressure to talk yeah. about that. Um, so I think I'm, I'm really interested in that. Um, and then also just whether or not students say that they're changing where they want to go to school, especially um, high achieving students of color. Are they making decisions differently about where they would apply? Yeah, it seems like these next few graduating classes, it'll be particularly challenging because they'll be having they won't have the experience of, you know, past students knowing kind of what works and what doesn't and, and what the best strategies are. It'll be definitely interesting to watch. All right. Well, thank you, Kaylin, for joining us. We will continue to track this story. Um, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Austin Community Foundation, a new report by the Women's Fund at Austin Community Foundation, explores what life is like for women in Central Texas. Read it now at austincf.org slash women2023. And Good Reason Houston believes students deserve great school options. Explore our data dashboard to find out how schools are performing. Learn more at goodreasonhouston.org. Okay, so it has been unfathomably hot in Texas this month with records being broken all over the state. A few And few people in Texas feel the brunt of the heat wave more than prisoners and prison guards. Most of the state's prisons are unair conditioned. And people inside one Huntsville prison said temperatures reached 130 degrees last week. But the state's prison agency has only reported five heat-related illnesses among prisoners so far this year, and the state hasn't reported a heat-related death since 2012. Joining us to discuss this topic is criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hey, Jolie. Hey. So I just have to ask very quickly first, these numbers, no heat-related deaths since 2012, only five heat-related illnesses. How skeptically should we be viewing these numbers? Um, I would say very. Um, so the reason why isn't so 2012 is the last time that the agency officially said, OK, someone died of heat stroke in our prisons. Um, since then, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice has been, you know, hit with a lot of lawsuits, um, wrongful death lawsuits of men who died of heat stroke or the prison not, you know, doing enough to help them and save them and keep them safe. Um, there have also there's also been a long um, a years long civil rights lawsuit at one a class action lawsuit at one prison, um, a geriatric prison, essentially saying that it violated the Constitution's um, protection from cruel and unusual punishment to not have air conditioning in a geriatric facility. Um, after years and millions of dollars um, fighting that lawsuit, the the department actually did settle um, and agreed to install air conditioning in that one prison. So the incentive is not really there forever for them to say that a death was heat related because it has landed them in court a lot um, and very costly court battles. 
Um, aside from that, in terms of heat-related illnesses, as you said, they've reported five this year. They've reported mm -hmm. nine among staff, um, and that's something that prisoners and advocates really harp on, um, saying that you know, the prisoners are there 24-7. They get no relief. They don't get to go home. They don't get to, you know, sit in air conditioning or take a cold shower very often, um, despite them being supposed to. And it's it, there's also seven times more prisoners than there are staff. Um, so they don't really think it's they're they're not logging most of these inmate deaths and I or inmate illnesses. Oh, and this. I can tell you. Um, just based on what I hear from prisoners in letters and also from their moms and loved ones, their girlfriends, their wives, um, their husbands. Um, this is, you know, I've I've heard way more than five um, situations where uh, inmates have said they've passed out. Um, you know, so they, it just there's a, there's a lot more than, you know, it, it is being reported to me and to advocates than is being reported by the state, the state department. Um, so that that's kind of where I get into in terms of how skeptically we should be viewing these numbers. What can you tell us just about what it's like to be in a prison in Texas in the summer? Yeah, so basically um, in these prisons, it's about 70 prisons that don't have air conditioning in most of the facilities uh, and most like the living areas where the prisoners are. Um, usually these are concrete and metal buildings, um, oftentimes with like metal beds. So, you know, inmates have said it's it's basically impossible to lay on their bed because it's hot to the touch. It's just a metal slab. Um, you know, they if they're in the cells, they will have a sink that has water, but they often say it's almost it's incredibly hot water that comes out of the sink. But even still... Mm -hmm. I, I've had so many prisoners tell me that they will wet their sheets in the hot water and just put it on the concrete floor and try to lay in the water to try to get some relief that way. You hear of a lot of um, prisoners will break their windows because they're just desperate for any type of airflow um, to come in, even though the hot the air is hot outside. You know, when you're inside these prisons, the temperatures are generally much higher than the outside temperatures, which are already at this point in, incredibly high. Um, so it's really, you know, um, prisoners report like they have heat rash, they're often dizzy, they they're often fainting, they're reporting that they're fainting. Um, and these are just, um, it, it, I mean, it's a miserable situation for everyone involved, I think is fair to say. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, there, there are some people who might be dismissive of this because these are people, you know, serving time for serious sentences. And of course, you know, there are legitimate questions to ask about whether anyone should be treated like this, no matter why. But it is also an issue that affects the prison guards, right? And the prison staffing in terms of people whose job it is to do this, but also who's going to want to work in a prison that's 130 degrees, right? And so that it, it's kind of a vicious cycle because these are and you know corrections officers have also been at the legislature asking for this money like hey can we please put air conditioning in prisons because this isn't like it's an unsafe work environment. Mm -hmm. um, prisons are you know the Texas prisons have been understaffed since I can remember since I know since I've been here you know 
and mm -hmm. they're getting they were severe, you know severely understaffed um during over the last few years it's gotten worse and worse so the prisons are very hard it's very hard for them to keep officers in this job and um a lot of the times that's at least partially contributed attributed to the heat um these officers have to work in these same environments and they're having to wear often like heavy gear um, and that's also in terms of what prisoners are saying is why, and sometimes they don't even blame the officers, why they're not getting the relief that the Texas Department of Criminal Justice is is meant to give them, these mitigating factors, which is supposed to be all prisoners are supposed to have unlimited access to ice water. That is, I can't, I hear over and over again that that just doesn't happen because the the guards who are supposed to be passing that out just are not, they don't either there's not enough of them or the ones who are there are just not willing or able to go into these areas to hand out this ice water. Sure. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's, it, yeah, it's bad for everyone involved. So tell us about some of the recent deaths that you've been looking at that have not been attributed to heat, at least so far. Yeah. So what I've been doing in the last few weeks during this, this heat wave as it's kind of spiked up is I've been looking at the, the prison agency is required to report all deaths within their custody within 30 days of the death to the state. They report, they report it to the attorney general's office and there's an online database of those reports. So I've been looking at those reports every day um, and just looking for anything that is unexplained um, or maybe a little bit seems a little off. So what I found were um, as of, well, as of yesterday, as of this week, um, there were now I in my story from earlier this week, I say nine, now I say 10, 10 um, deaths since the middle of June um, that were either heart attack, cardiac arrest, or undetermined cause of death at, not, not only 10 deaths overall, but these were 10 deaths that happened at prisons that did not have air conditioning during days where the heat index was above 100 degrees um, in that region, in the region of the prison. So, you know, six, six prisoners died of cardiac arrest, heart attack, some sort of cardiac event, um, three of whom were in their 30s, um, which is always a little bit surprising. You know, heart attacks, um, cardiac arrest among people in their 30s is not super common. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that one of the cases that I looked at, um, I was able to talk to his his sisters, a 35 year old who died in a Huntsville prison um, last week. And he, his he was out um, his job. He was a, an inmate who had kind of limited supervision. He was well trusted by the staff to be able to, you know, do jobs that many prisoners are not trusted to do, such as mowing the lawns, maybe outside the fence lines. Um, and he was out mowing um, during the day and he collapsed and died of what the prison system says was cardiac arrest. Um, and so the thing with this is if it was cardiac arrest, you know, doctors and scientists have long said that heat deaths are very undercounted. Um, and a doctor told me, an emergency room physician told me that it's really hard to say if heat stroke caused a cardiac arrest or if it caused some other type of death, unless you're there measuring a body temperature at the time of death. 
um, because, you know, bodies cool down. And also, like, it's really hard to say something was heat stroke unless you can say that this person's body temperature was elevated at the time of death. Um, and that's something that I asked the prison system if they measure when these are when these types of cases happen, when people are collapsing in very hot prisons. Um, and they have not been able to give me an answer on if they do that or not. So lastly, I wanted to just ask about the effort to air condition these prisons. This was a topic that came up during the most recent legislative session, but maybe fell short. What is the status of this kind of attempt? Yeah, so there. this was actually, I think tensions are really high going into the summer already among prisoners and prisoner rights advocates, just because this was the closest um, the legislature had ever gotten to putting real money towards air conditioning prisons. Um, and as you say, it fell short. So essentially the Texas House proposed putting about half a billion dollars um, over the next two years towards cooling um, a large a large number of um, prisons and with the ultimate goal of getting all prisons air conditioned by 2031. Um, but that didn't go anywhere in the Senate. The Senate didn't want to provide any money for air conditioning prisons. Ultimately, what finally passed was there was um, about $85 million that was set aside for, quote, deferred maintenance. Um, so the agency does not have to use that for air conditioning costs, but it's it's expected that that money will go towards air conditioning some prisons. Um, and that's what they have right now. There were also already plans with existing budget funds to start putting some air conditioning in other units, um, including at least one of the units where um, a man recently died of a of a heart of a cardiac arrest. Um, so they're basically what TDCJ, the department has been doing is trying to kind of pick away at how much air conditioning they can install with the funding that they, their existing funding, but the legislature has not put any money directly towards this project. Do you have any sense of how far 85 million could go? Yeah, so the, the department had issued a plan at the during um, the last few years when the House was looking at how to fund this and they had put forth a plan and it really, the thing is, is it really depends on the prison. Um, some prisons they estimate, and, and it's also unclear how well the department can estimate how much prison air conditioning will cost because they've mm. grossly overestimated how much it would cost in the past. Um, but they estimated that at one, some prisons, it could be about 40 million per prison at others, you know, four to 5 million. So it really depends on um, the units themselves. And just because there's, there's heat, all prisons have heat. So the like ducks are there. It's just in terms of um, getting the air conditioning system into those prisons as well can apparently be vastly different costs. All right. Well, I, I strongly recommend folks read Julie's article, Inmates Are Dying and Stifling Texas Prisons, but the state seldom acknowledges heat as a cause of death. You can find it at texastribune.org. Thanks, Julie, for joining us. Thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas Farm Bureau, Texas State Technical College, Austin Community Foundation, and Good Reason Houston. We'll talk to you all next week. Hear from Colin Allred, Barry Weiss, Douglas Brinkley, Mary Trump, and many others 
at the 2023 Texas Tribune Festival, happening September 21st through the 23rd in Austin. Join us for conversations that matter with leaders in politics, government, tech, and media. Learn more at tribfest.org.